0: Hey, Rarecast listeners. I wanted to tell you about a new program from Global Genes called Data DIY. Access to data is essential for advancing the understanding and treatment of rare diseases. The challenge for patient advocates and organizations is to be as savvy about data as researchers and clinicians. The Global Genes Data DIY program teaches organization leaders. How to Become Empowered Data Owners and Stewards. If you'd like to learn more about the program, attend an upcoming Data DIY Workshop, or view resources, go to globalgenes.org forward slash data DIY. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Wendy Chung and her lab have proven a talent for identifying new rare diseases. She and her team have discovered more than 44 genetic conditions to date. But Chung, a professor of pediatrics and medicine at Columbia University and New York Presbyterian Hospital and director of the clinical genetics program at Columbia University, is driving beyond discovery to help patients find therapeutic alternatives for these conditions at Columbia University's Center for Rare Pediatric Genetic Diseases. We spoke to Chung about the center, how it works to find new treatments for rare conditions, and what hopes she has for scaling and accelerating the search for new therapies to treat rare diseases with small populations. Wendy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me here. We're going to talk about your work, the Center for Rare Pediatric Genetic Diseases at Columbia University and New York Presbyterian Hospital, and its push not only to diagnose patients with rare diseases, but also develop treatments. You're a a medical and molecular geneticist and a professor of pediatrics and medicine. How many rare diseases has your lab discovered to date? I
1: think our latest count is that our lab has identified 44 genetic uh, rare diseases, um, and we're still still working on more.
0: It seems like an astounding number. What accounts for your ability to do that? Really, it's um, although you know
1: we're pretty good at what we do. Really, what it's been is a change in the technology. Um, you know, when I first started in medical genetics, uh, we could only afford to analyze a little bit of genetic information. Now, really, we can analyze an entire genome, and we have many other people to compare them to. And so, with that, it's just the entirety of the world's knowledge that's increased that's allowed us to be successful at doing this.
0: Um, so, the, the field has matured you've created the Center for Rare Pediatric and Genetic Diseases to not only diagnose patients, but to help find treatments for newly discovered conditions where there are no treatments. What was the thinking in doing this?
1: So, um, you know, I'd spent the first 20 years of my career in genetics being able to diagnose conditions, and and as you were pointing out, you know, we're pretty good at that at this point. But really for me... um, I want to make sure that I can impact the lives of my patients, and that means being able to do something about with the genetic information now that we know what what the cause is. Um, and, again, just like the field had matured in terms of generating genetic data, the field is currently maturing in terms of developing treatments. And so I, I like to think um, I can go to where the puck is going to be, not where it is now, you know, but trying to anticipate where the field is going and I really am very hopeful that this is where the field is going um, much faster than it ever has in medical history. And so we want to be prepared for it. Uh, we, as rare disease, the rare disease community, want to be prepared for it, and we want to be able to help enable that it moves forward faster. and that's what that's what
0: my program's about at Columbia. You've got two main programs under the umbrella of the center, the Discover Program, which focuses on diagnostics. But I want to talk about the TREATMENT program, which takes off where the DISCOVER program ends. TREATMENT is an acronym. What does it stand for? Oh,
1: Danny, now you're stretching me. <laughs> <laughs> so it is an acronym, and I have to admit that it's such a long acronym, I myself forget exactly what all the letters stand for. Um,
0: but well, maybe the point more is, importantly, what is, what is the goal of TREATMENT? <laughs>
1: exactly. So the point is that what it embodies is, um, knowing that treatment doesn't happen overnight. It's a process that requires research, so that is the RN treatment. Um, and that as we're doing it, we're really thinking, as I said, how to be strategic uh, in terms of bringing together as many patients as we can from around the world, um, trying to think strategically about understanding the condition by developing natural history data, by developing what I call the tools or the reagents to study the conditions, uh, cell lines from patients, animal models to be able to study this, uh, as well as being able to understand enough about the mechanism uh, so that we can think of a rational strategy. So as an example, um, if the problem is that the gene is not working, it's missing, it's not showing up for the job, we may have a treatment strategy that replaces the gene, you know, puts it back. Um, On the other hand, there's a completely different mechanism where the mutation is causing, if you want to think of it, something that's toxic. And so we need to be able to get rid of the toxic molecule, um, the mutant protein that's produced. And that's a very, very different strategy. So kind of bifurcates early in terms of being able to do that. Um, And as we're doing it, we're trying to find partners. We realize that we can't do this alone. So we're trying to find scientists around the world who are capable of working with us, doctors, uh, companies that are developing technology, pharmaceutical companies, but but we're trying to bring everyone together to to work on this with a shared mission.
0: It it strikes me that there are several things you need to do to pursue a treatment. Capital is certainly part of that. Having some sort of a critical mass of patients may be part of that. Uh, perhaps pharmaceutical company interest in a disease may be part of that. What What's the decision-making process that goes into whether or not to pursue a potential therapy?
1: So um, one other thing I'll say that I neglected to say about treatment is that, as you said, uh, it requires a critical mass, and so what we've thought about with this program is that each one of these rare diseases is individually rare but collectively common, and so we wanted to think about how if we started thinking about this for one condition or two or 44, um, how it could benefit a much larger group and community. So we've tried to build out um, the next part of your question, which is trying to think uh, really like someone who's developing treatments, trying to think like a biotech company or a pharmaceutical company. And so there are, uh, for those listeners that um, are wondering about this for their condition, there are several factors um, that I'm learning still uh, in terms of what's important. Uh, One of the questions is, um, what's the patient population? How large is the patient population? How many folks are out there? Uh, Another question is, is the condition reversible? Um, You know, can you actually fix it? Uh, can you undo what might have been done already? Um, there's a question of when can you fix it or when can you reverse it? Is there a certain critical period in a lifetime when, when you can do that? And if so, what is that? Has it been defined? Um, and is there a point where it is not reversible? Um, and so those are important issues. Uh, We also think about where in the body we need to be able to treat. There are some parts of the body that are easy to access, other parts of the body that are more difficult. Um, As we think about that, as I said, we think about whether it's a a gene we need to replace, what we call a loss of function, or whether it's a toxic problem or a gain of function or a change in substrate specificity. Um, We also think about what is the exact gene and what does it do? Is it something that Lives inside the cell? Does it live outside the cell? Can it be uh, engaged with an antibody? Um, is it something that an oligonucleotide could be used to get rid of the toxin uh, or change the regulation of a gene? Is it something that gene replacement could be used for? Because, again, the gene is missing and we just replace it. Uh, or is it something that we actually have to do gene surgery? You know, we have to be able to go in and, and fix the gene. And do we have to do it in every single cell? Uh, or can we do it in a portion of the cells? If we're in the liver, for instance, could we do it in just 10% of the cells, or do we have to get it in 100% of the cells? So, so a lot of questions, uh, you know, you probably weren't keeping track, but a lot of questions, and no one of them is the deciding factor, but it's kind of a bunch of them together that prioritize for some people what strategy. Not whether, to a certain extent, you know, um, what the window is and how many people can be treated, but also what the strategy is.
0: Given that your lab has identified 44 new rare diseases, it strikes me that it would not be unusual for you to see the first patient ever diagnosed with a specific condition. Do you think of pursuing a treatment for a rare disease at that point, or is there some process you go on to try to identify other patients and get a sense of how broad a population there might be? Well, for sure, as soon as
1: I make that first diagnosis, I immediately am already starting to think about treatments and treatment strategies. Um, I will say, and if any of my patients are listening, they know this to be the case, that when I diagnose the very first patient, I'm not 100% confident that I have the right diagnosis. So we do go through a process of identifying other patients with the same gene, the same types of clinical manifestations, to be really certain that we've got the right gene. And... Um, you know i'm i would say that i've got a pretty good instinct to know when that is but but it does require we call it replication or or independently confirming that so that's important um once we get up to a critical mass and you know usually that ends up being something like five or six patients uh where we see consistency then i'm pretty sure that uh this in fact is the right answer the right diagnosis and then we start thinking really really seriously about as i said getting the tools together the animal models, the cell lines, the other things we need to be able to prove the mechanism to think about which strategy is going to be best. Um, but to answer your original question, from the very, very beginning, we start thinking about it. And as soon as I see that gene, I think to myself, is it druggable? Is it, you know, can I use an antibody? Can I use a biologic? Uh, can I use gene replacement? You know, there are about a dozen things that go through my head in terms of, of strategies, and it starts as soon as I see that gene.
0: How, how do you work with patient groups and what role do they play in you being able to do the types of things you, you try to do? Um, so as I always tell people, for everything I do, it starts with a patient
1: and it ends with a patient. Um, so as we're doing this, you know, patients and I work in different ways um, in the sense that I always try and let the patient guide me in terms of how actively they want to be involved in the process and what role they want to play uh for many conditions um my families work with me in different ways. They have different skills to contribute and they, they want to be or can be more or less actively involved depending on what other things are going on. Uh, but we always do this as a team and what we try and do is use our complementary skills to be able to get the job done. So I've got some people who are really good at marketing and so they think about how to be able to communicate effectively with others um, as we're doing this and sometimes they're really helpful to be able to take a complex message or complex bit of information and make it accessible. Um, oftentimes also make things look prettier than I would because they're more artistic than I would. I, I am. Um, sometimes we have other people and families that are uh, have really good business savvy sense and so they sometimes make introductions to people in uh, companies um, that can have something to offer, whether it's artificial intelligence or pharmaceutical companies or diagnostic companies, but you know they, they can get the word out that way. Um, other families have teachers, and so they're really good at teaching the community about the things that we need to do. So, you know, m- different people in different ways, um, but always, you know, at the, the lead of the patients in terms of how they want to be involved and being able to teach them uh, the science in a way that they can be astute in terms of thinking through things and, and really making informed decisions about what they want to do and how aggressively they want to do it.
0: How far would you take a therapy in development? Is there some expectation that you would take it up to preclinical work and try to hand it off to a pharmaceutical company, or would you go further than that? So, um,
1: you know, it's expensive to take a drug all the way to market, and I am very, very clear that I am not a pharmaceutical company in terms of doing this. Uh, I think what I see our role in treatment is, is to de-risk this for other companies. Um, we're actually doing several partnerships with companies where they, for instance, have a compound that might be useful, and we've developed a mouse model for the condition, and we'll have a, an agreement where we will collaborate, where they'll give us the drug. We'll do what I call a, a mouse clinical trial, so we'll try it out in the mice and see if it looks effective. Um, and as we get, uh, to the point where it looks both safe in the mouse and effective in the mouse, um, then at some point they will probably take over, you know, officially having what they call the IND, um, for the medication in humans. And, and I'm sure we have been and we will continue to be a clinical trial site. We'll continue to work with the families to think about what's a meaningful endpoint to use in the clinical trials. We'll use our natural history data for comparison to see what it's like for, for people when they're not on drug for comparison to see if the drug's working. Um, so I think it's all about being able to work together with people that have different, both skill sets as well as resources. Um, I think the good thing about this is we've got a wide community of a lot of friends who are good people who, who want get to get the job done.
0: In your career, you've seen technology greatly speed the process of getting to a diagnosis How hopeful are you that you're going to see that same type of acceleration through technology on drug development? Well, I can see
1: that I've already seen that happen, and I guess that's what excites me so much. Um, So, One of the conditions, one of the less rare of the rare diseases I've studied, spinal muscular atrophy. We started studying over 10 years ago in something called the Pediatric Neuromuscular Clinical Research Network, and I was uh, privileged to be able to be part of that collaboration from the very beginning. Um, at the time when we did that, we had no treatment, uh, nothing except supportive care for our, our patients with spinal muscular atrophy, and it was a, a degenerative condition, and I am intentionally using the past tense of was a degenerative condition, which was the most common genetic cause of death for children less than two years of age. Um, so it was really quite devastating for families, and, uh, you know, we, quite common, one in 10,000 babies uh, are born with SMA. Um, it, this community that listening may or may not know, but we now have an FDA-approved medication for that. We also... I predict before the end of the year may have gene replacement therapy approved for the medication, and probably within the next two or three years we'll have at least one or more other medications approved. Um, And this was, I like to think, in part because as I could see treatments um, that were coming down the pipeline, we started a pilot that I led in New York State for doing newborn screening for that condition so that we could diagnose those babies immediately after birth and immediately give them the option of starting treatment before the degeneration started. So I talked about a window of opportunity. Uh, We identified that that window was very early. We needed to get in very quickly. But we also thought about a solution of how to be able to get in early and make that diagnosis and offer those children an option, those babies, an option for uh, treatment before they became symptomatic. And many of those first children uh, in those newborn screening studies that then went on to the clinical trials um, are still happy and healthy and strong uh, and doing very well. Um, And so, it's the one-two punch, I think, of diagnostics and therapeutics working back and forth that for SMA I think is already going to make that uh, into a very, very different condition um, that is no longer going to be a hopeless death sentence. Um, and I think our learnings from that and using those same strategies are going to work, at least for some additional genetic conditions. And that gives me enormous hope um, for what we can do. And I think it's only going to continue accelerating um, because we're both learning faster and because more people are getting interested in the science and, and refining it and making it better and better. So I, I'm very optimistic.
0: As we think about things like gene therapies and gene editing and antisense therapies, is there an opportunity to get to a point where we have some sort of plug-and-play technology where we can address the needs of very small patient populations, even populations of one, and potentially deliver a a treatment that way?
1: So, uh, we, and uh, by we I mean um, doctors and scientists in the rare disease space, have been thinking about this and thinking about it with the FDA as well, um, the regulatory agency that um, regulates these things. And I do think they are going to be bundling these to a certain extent, um, because like you said, there are going to be some similar risks, and if the vectors or the essentially molecular machinery we use to insert the genes or correct the scenes is standardized. It's going to be similar risks as a general rule, and realistically, we're not going to be able to get FDA approval for one patient, as you said. Um, The FDA, I think, has been uh, been quite impressed in terms of how willing they are to work with patients and families um, and doctors and scientists on this. So, I am... uh, optimistic that we're not there yet, but there is a path forward, I think, for being able to scale this in terms of the regulatory process.
0: Wendy Chung, Professor of Pediatrics and Medicine at Columbia University and Director of the Center for Rare Pediatric Genetic Diseases. Wendy, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, Danny. Thanks for listening.